Hello and welcome to a special episode of Leaders in Focus, recorded as ever from IMG Studios. And today we are joined by two thrusting executives from IMG Digital, fresh off the back of the release of their always hotly anticipated annual digital trends report. We are going to be speaking to Bindi Guy, who'll be telling us about the digital platform that sport is sleeping on in 2024. For me, the big one is YouTube. I think people underestimate the power of YouTube. And why this is the year that women's sport fulfills its commercial potential. I think from an audience growth and revenue perspective, the proof is in the pudding. And we'll be talking to Charlie Beale, who'll be telling us the difference between if and when in digital trend spotting. It's not too difficult to identify them, but it's difficult to time them. <laughs> and how to put in minimum spend for maximum impact in making stadiums smarter. You're served personalised content, personalised ads, personalised offers depending on where you are. I'm Bindi, I am VP of Digital Commercial at IMG. My role is to create revenue opportunities for rights holders, either directly through digital marketing opportunities or indirectly to help them grow their digital audiences that then helps them leverage that for bigger commercial opportunities. So my banker prediction for 2024 is around quality over quantity when it comes to digital growth and engagement. And what I mean by that is I don't think rights holders will be chasing the big numbers, big impressions next year, and actually they'll be thinking more about who are the audiences? How are we connecting with them? What are the different types of engagements that they are, you know, that they're engaging with on digital channels and content? And really thinking about the quality of those versus the quantity of, of you know, the big numbers. Mm -hmm. And your outside bet? So my outside bet is, you know, something very close to what I work in, which is partnerships and the digital element. And my prediction for 2024 is that digital is going to play a bigger part in the overall commercial pie that there is um, within the sports industry. It's going to help leverage a lot of those existing commercial deals, but also digital is going to allow for a new breed of brands that are coming into sports from a digital perspective, um, you know, really challenging those endemic brands into in terms of what's the value that's been being driven by sports. Mm -hmm. So more digital in the pie ingredients, maybe. Yes, more digital in the pie, but also new brands coming into the fold. We'll come back to that in a year, Bindi. Let's see, let's see whether you're right. Um, I will be. Okay. <laughs> um, we're talking about 2024. Of course, we're in a brand new year. Uh, out with the old, in with the new. What would you say is the number one question clients would nag you about last year? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I think from a digital perspective, it was really around growth. How do we grow not just audiences, but really the value of digital? Mm -hmm. uh, I think rights holders are coming to a realization that there is a value to digital. They do have assets that can be commercialized. And it's how do they figure out how to speak the language of commercial when it comes to digital? How do rights holders who have been talking numbers for some time have been giving these massive kind of impression numbers, whatever they are, and we can list a few kind of uh, major rights holders who have gone down this route. Yeah. 
how do they move their communication to a more kind of realistic quality kind of approach? It's very difficult, right? To it is. Suddenly. It is. And I, I don't think it's, it's about changing your communication. I think it's more about how you measure success. So, mm. of course, there'll be pieces of content that go viral and you get the massive impressions. But really, what does that mean for you from a business perspective? How does that translate to commercial gains or, you know, revenue opportunities. And I think the balance between what you do on third party platforms versus your owned and operated, that's really going to start to become a lot more, um, they're going to have a lot more of a focus marketing wise in terms of how do we translate what's happening on third party platforms to our own, mm -hmm. which allows them to commercialize it a lot better. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things in your IMG digital um, report this year was a sort of call to arms for the industry. Stop saying social media. Uh, it's punchy. Um, why? Why? Um, there's two reasons, yeah. really, what this trend was about. So firstly, it is about the word social and social media. I think, you know, Facebook's 20 years this year uh, or last year, and we, we don't use online platforms in the way that we used to use Facebook. You know, we're no longer communicating with just friends and family. We are now communicating with brands and individuals and that social interaction has changed a lot. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the platforms aren't there for that social interaction. So the term social, I just don't think is applicable anymore. Mm -hmm. It's unhelpful. It groups together a wide variety of platforms that each have their own unique selling point. So I, I just don't think it's relevant in 2024 to be mm -hmm. calling them all social media platforms. Mm -hmm. But really the other, the other part of the trend is to talk about what, you know, what is the main key reason that you're using these platforms? And what we'd love to see our clients do in 2024 is really take stock and take a step back and really understand how are these platforms helping us deliver our goals? And do we need to be on all of them? Should we be on all of them? And that's really where we want to see clients getting to next year. If we're not calling them social media platforms, if we're not saying, oh, let's post this to the socials, what are we saying? Look, I don't think we're ever going to stop saying social media platforms, but I think we need to think of them in terms of marketing channels, digital marketing channels. And from my marketing experience, the way that I think it's more helpful that rights holders talk about them is from either a branding perspective or a performance perspective. So which platforms are helping us build our brand, build our audiences, you know, get our, our name out there mm -hmm. versus those that actually drive people back to your website, to your app, help you drive revenue through ticket sales, et cetera, and identifying the platforms in that way. There will be some that do both for you, but there'll be some that just do one versus the other. Mm -hmm. um, how do you decide or how do you counsel your clients in the sports world? When is the appropriate time to reduce your activity on a platform, to leave it altogether? How do you do that? I think with these digital channels, data is key. And I just don't know that enough rights holders are really getting into the data of what these platforms are delivering. Mm -hmm. We very much advise on weekly and monthly reporting to understand what's working well, what's not working well. There's often opportunities where you've tried something and it didn't work. So I think really being creative and innovative when it comes to digital channels and trying new things is really important. You're not just competing with other sports when it 
comes to this, you're, you're competing with entertainment. So you've got to have a different mindset when it comes to using these channels. I think it's always very helpful to benchmark yourselves, to look at what other people are doing, not just within sports also, to get inspiration about what our users engaging with. Mm -hmm. Planning is really important. I think particularly with sports, when the season is on, you've got this abundance of content that you can put on these platforms. But as soon as the season ends, people tend to go a bit quiet, which ultimately becomes more expensive for them when they want to you know, get back on. So I think planning is key. Having a yearly plan of what content do you want going out on the platforms and when is really important. Mm -hmm. I think ultimately you need to remember also that the audiences on these platforms, they're not yours. You know, the platforms own them. So it's always thinking about and knowing that we can only we can only influence that to a certain point and we've got to try bring this audience to our owned and operated where we can mm -hmm. then you know monetize and commercialize that audience mm -hmm. a lot better so there has to be a degree of uh, sort of clear-sightedness and almost ruthlessness in decision making if the if a platform is not delivering what you need it to deliver in terms of output and you know ROI pin it off yeah um, but again, it comes down to your goals. You know, yeah. if, if it's brand awareness, I think there is a case that you, you are present on most of them to help. But you've got to think about what is the resource you've got for this? What is the content that is required? You know, mm. if you compare X to TikTok, for example, X can be quite easy in that it's text-based, you can do live scores and it engages with your core. Mm -hmm. Whereas TikTok requires a different skill set. It requires people that understand how to edit and produce content that is for the platform. Mm -hmm. So it's thinking about that. In general, when you go into a, I know that you guys do a, a fairly comprehensive kind of digital audit as a first step when you, when you go in uh, with new clients, do you get the impression that um, the sports world is producing too much content across too many channels or not enough across not enough? I don't think it's either or. I, I think, you know, having come from Pinterest and X, there are, there are industries or verticals where you don't have that much content available to you. So I think sports are very lucky and they've got the opportunity where they have this content that people want to engage with and they distribute it um, majority through video, you know, match highlights, etc. What I think sports don't do well enough is the behind the scenes, the shoulder content that I think the entertainment world does really well. So if sports can really plan and produce that type of content, work with the athletes to really help build the brand, build the sport, that creates year-round content that people want to engage with. So mm -hmm. I guess my summary is during season, they do, but it's in the off-season that we often see they don't. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, your rankings, your platform power rankings. Always uh, an interesting thing to do a list. Yeah. Um, Talk us through who's at the top, why they're there. There's a bit of chopping and changing on last year. What are you seeing? So, I mean, there's 20. And back to my original point about calling it social media, there, there are so many platforms that rights holders could be on. Mm. Um, it's daunting, but it's also really exciting, the opportunities. So TikTok being number one, I don't think is a surprise to anyone. They've really grown the platform. Rights holders that have invested in the platform, I think, have seen real success. And I think it will continue. What's different about TikTok is the algorithm. So with other platforms like X and Instagram, generally the behavior was follow an account to receive more content. Whereas 
what TikTok have done incredibly well is just understand your user behavior and feed you content and you just you stay on it, right? And you keep going through content. So I think for, for clients that are looking for that brand awareness, that exposure, growing new audiences, TikTok is, is great. Mm -hmm. WhatsApp is another one that's really risen through the ranks, particularly towards the end of last year. And I'm really interested to see what happens with WhatsApp mm -hmm. in 2024. We've seen a number of rights holders try and test it and see some success from it. Um, but it's more on the analytics side. It's not as um, it's not as forward as the other platforms when it comes to the analytics. So I think once we see that, we'll start to understand, you know, is mm -hmm. this working well for clients? Mm -hmm. But I think if you think about our user behavior and how often we're on WhatsApp, it's only, I think it can only be a good thing for rights holders. Mm -hmm. And is there a platform that the sports world is kind of sleeping on? I mean, I notice LinkedIn is fairly low down on your power rankings, but there seem to be more and more sports people on LinkedIn. Yeah. Yeah, LinkedIn is a really interesting one. I think particularly from a commercial perspective where I you know, help advise rights holders, particularly for those brand partnerships where actually their ultimate goal is to um, engage with consumers that are going to buy the products from a B2B perspective. LinkedIn is a really powerful platform for that. Mm -hmm. Also in terms of you know, brand building and just recruitment, for example, I think LinkedIn is, is really important. But... For me, the big one is YouTube. I think people underestimate the power of YouTube. And yes, it requires skill set and content similar to TikTok, but YouTube has been one of the longest standing platforms that's been around. It's probably one of the most successful platforms that helps clients monetize through the platform. And we're seeing younger people still engaging with the platform. So in that sense, I just think it is a must-have, it should be a must-have for all rights holders, and actually they should be over-investing in it if they're not. Women's sport, here comes the money. Another bold prediction. Yes. Uh, everybody's talking about women's sport in the sports industry. There is clearly um, popular and commercial momentum behind it. Uh, I think the IMG Digital Trends Report last year had something on women's sport as well. This year, you're, you're saying that the potential is going to be fulfilled. Everyone's saying that, Bindi. And it strikes me that it, women's sport can only do one thing that's it, and that is not live up to expectations because the expectations are so high. Am I wrong? You are wrong. Okay. <laughs> um, and the reason you're wrong is, is we have so many examples where Women's sport is growing. The commercial revenues are growing also. I mean, recently there was the renewal of the NCAA media rights, which we helped advise on. Yep. You've got the NWSL just going from strength to strength when it comes to media rights. And yep. also the women's IPL, they managed to achieve pay equity and their media rights were also growing. So I think from an audience growth and revenue perspective, the proof is in the pudding when it comes to revenue. Mm -hmm. I will say that it's not happening for everyone though, but I don't think that is isolated to women's sport. I think across the sports industry, we are seeing a number of rights holders really being challenged by their commercial revenues and their audiences declining. So I think women's sport have a real opportunity here where they can be a lot more fresh thinking, they can market themselves a lot better. And the key for me is really diversifying your revenue streams and that means diversifying your audiences, your engagements, the platforms you're on, 
to make sure that you you sort of don't end up in the same place as some of the rights holders we're seeing, you know, in the mm -hmm. last few years where media rights revenues are declining and they've kind of got nowhere else to go. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting how people measure the success of the growth of women's sport, yeah. I think, because, you know, people are talking about commercial growth now, and that is absolutely valid, and the examples you've given are spot on. The NWSL deal, I think, is a huge uplift, something like a 40x uplift on the previous deal to $60 million a year, which is obviously massive, but not massive compared to some other sports yeah. properties. Yeah. And that stick will always be there to kind of beat those properties with, right? Compared to... For now, yes. Yes, for now, yeah. exactly. What do you think an appropriate success metric should be this year for women's sport? I think it's, you know, it's always going to be judged by revenue. You know, how much, how much are you commercially driving? And that's across the industry. But the advantage that I talked about that women's sport has is that they are building the foundations, the digital foundations that can really help sustain those revenue goals and actually grow them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, working with rights holders that have been around for a number of years, it's a lot harder to go and fix the digital aspect and really understand the audience. And so for women's sport, whether that's driving revenue directly and really helping build those digital foundations for marketing, that can only grow. But also when you're thinking about the um, the wider commercial benefits, you know, having a larger digital audience can only mean that more people are gonna watch on television, for example. So they're building these foundations, or at least we can help them in that, um, versus the other way around where you have these big TV deals that are declining and now you've got to grow that digital audience. Mm. What's different about um digital audiences, digital fandom, I guess, um, digital activity in women's sport as opposed to men's sport? So I think when we research, you know, the, the audiences and the fandom for women's sport, I think there's a, there's a generalisation that it's all women. It's not. So that's the first thing that I want to sort of... Um, myth bust. Myth bust, right. It's not just women. There are men who also enjoy women's sport. But... For a long time, to be able to engage or find content, it, it has been digital first. And I think that's the difference here, where there's, there's an audience who are digitally savvy, they know how to use the internet, and they've been finding this content. So that's the difference in the fandom. Mm -hmm. I think, interestingly, um, what I was reading a lot about was that the fandom is less tribal, which... I know it has its own sort of um, connotations with it. The tribalness of football sometimes helps in commercialising of assets. But I think for brands, and particularly where brands are becoming a lot more conscious about who they're supporting and what type of content they're next to, it feels like a very safe place to be. Um, it is a very you know, positive engagement that you're seeing mm -hmm. through women's sports. So I think that's a, another difference. Um, and then finally, I think, for the younger generation in particular, what women's sport are able to do and by being on these newer platforms and really brand building is diversify those audiences. You know, having a good mix of not just males and females, but age ranges, locations, behaviours, that can only help build their commercial um, branding and their commercial assets. Mm -hmm. So these are, in general, digital native properties. Yes. Going to diverse audiences as a result and not being quite as controversial and toxic in their discourse 
online as other properties, right? Yeah. That's the holy trinity. It is the holy trinity. Yeah. And I think, you know, when, when I particularly advise clients on commercialization of assets, that holy grail is, is a Venn diagram of rights holder, fan, sponsor. And that middle bit is really where you want to get to where everyone's getting what they want from that partnership, but you're also not alienating either group. And women's sport have a real opportunity to align mm -hmm. rights holder, fan and sponsor. Yep. There's a huge opportunity in women's sport because they're starting from a completely different place. It's almost a blank canvas. They don't have to follow the prescribed path that, you know, is there. Yeah. What would you counsel uh, women's sports properties to, yeah. to kind of make a different impact? I mean, it's, it's, it's across all of our clients, I think, what's really key when it comes to digital. Do you remember back in the day when they would talk about data being like oil? Yes. <laughs> Um, and I think from a digital perspective, if those foundations are being built, but with the right tracking and understanding of your data, that can be so powerful. The second area I think they can forge a different path is really around the athletes. So we've seen a lot of success across sport where athletes are actually helping grow the sport, the brand. You know, we're seeing it across rugby league also. And I think with women athletes, there's a real difference in how they approach digital media. Mm. In a way, they've had to rely on it for so long to grow their own brand that they've become really good at it. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're sort of more um, open to doing more creative and innovative things when it comes to building their digital brand, which can only help. Could you point to um, a few examples of athletes, teams, brands that, that you think are really doing it well? Yeah, I think the example of Adobe sponsoring the FA Women's Cup is the perfect example of where we're seeing a brand really supporting a, a rights holder when it comes to digital content creation. So mm -hmm. Adobe using AI to really create efficiencies across content creation for the league, the clubs, the athletes, but also have the ability to distribute that content to a wider audience and with more sort of more efficiencies, mm -hmm. that is a great example. And I think we're going to see a lot of success out of that partnership where, again, fan, sponsor, rights holder are seeing the value from that partnership. Mm -hmm. Any other examples that you'd like to mention? Um, I think TikTok um, partnering with the Six Nations Rugby and, you know, Wrexham, Burnley FC, that's really interesting. I don't think, you know, for men's sport in particular, we've seen a lot of the platforms partner in the same way that TikTok has. Mm -hmm. And it really shows for me how TikTok know that there's a real opportunity in engaging with the audiences that are, that are fans of these sports. And so I think, you know, being able to leverage that partnership with TikTok from a rights holder perspective to grow your audience and grow the engagement is really, mm. it's really exciting. Mm interesting as well that they don't sort of flirt with rights holders in terms of potentially being a broadcaster in the way that other platforms have in the past. Yeah, um, I mean, we did see Adobe actually live stream one of the games over the weekend over Instagram. So there is an element where, you know, it is beneficial to test and learn the broadcast element. But back to my earlier point around the behind the scenes content, the shoulder content, these are perfect opportunities to start building to, to ensure that long-term engagement with fans. Bendy, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. So I'm Charlie Beale. Uh, I sit within the digital team at IMG. 
my job is to help clients to build their media businesses through digital. Um, if I have two predictions for this year, I mean, shock horror AI is one of them, but I think let's put some meat on the bone there. I think uh, we very shortly, if not this week, we'll see the launch of a chat GPT store and that will be AI's app store moment. And what that will allow sports to do is create uh, a whole lot of new use cases and people to build upon that layer. And so we're going to see some incredible things. So I think that, that the kinds of things I would expect to see next year are sports organizations inputting their proprietary data into large language model tools and doing useful stuff like selling more tickets, helping uh, get more people through the doors, um, making more from their content, creating better customer service experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, that's your banker. What about your wildcard? Well, um, I'd say a sports property could be fronted by uh, an artificially generated uh, personality. Um, so that could either be an influencer that's been created from scratch yeah. or you could have a, a live broadcast uh, broadcast voiced by um, a famous person who's um, who's potentially passed on. Okay, so like this AI presidential candidate for FIFA, for example, if you've seen that, or maybe Tupac coming back to be the CEO of Arsenal? Yes, although those are p particularly contemporary. I'm always thinking about maybe Bill McLaren voicing the Six Nations oh, again. That's nice, yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, much gentler, yeah. I guess. We're talking about 2024 today, but one more question about 2023. Mm. What would you say is the most common question that you were getting asked by clients last year? It's always money, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, Give me some, question mark. Or... Yeah, just we've been doing this for so long. Where's, when are we going to see the return and how are we going to see the return? And I think the, the, the sharp end of, of certain existing uh, historic revenues coming and being a little bit trickier to renew or mm -hmm. trickier to grow mm -hmm. means that everyone's looking to diversify revenues. Um, I think... Uh, it's a now built-in expectation that you have some kind of relationship with your, your consumer or fan. Uh, but then, okay, so what's next? How do you monetize that relationship um, rather than just having a database full of email addresses? Mm -hmm. Is that the bit that you dread in a client, kind of uh, the life cycle of a client where you move through engagement, or, you know, reach, engagement, and then they're, they're asking you to show me the money. No, I don't dread it. I think what um, we have to prepare people for is the expectation that the money might not be uh, at, at, at where they want it to be. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I had a, a former life in the publishing industry, and there was a, a phrase around digital pennies for print dollars, mm -hmm. or cents for dollars, pennies for pounds. Mm -hmm. um, the same principle applies, but you, you've got to You've got to look people in the eye and say, look, where are the eyeballs? Where's the audience attention? What's the direction of travel? It's, fa it's fairly obvious. Yeah. Um, but I think the sports industry has had a history of harvesting value mm -hmm. uh, rather than creating new value. So if you think about it, the analogy of farming versus hunting, we're just trying to get people um, a little bit more used to hunting mm -hmm. for their revenue. It strikes me that um, Web3 seems to be a busted flush, right? There's, uh, we've had the, the wild rush to, to crypto, NFTs, anything on, you know, powered by Web3, and now it's gone. Am I wrong? You're never wrong. <laughs> but as usual, it's not as simple as that. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, obviously, we're seeing a huge um, withdrawal of the liquidity 
that came with speculators joining the NFT space, uh, thinking it was equivalent to cryptocurrency and, um, and that there, there was a quick buck to be made. So undoubtedly those speculators have left because they don't think there's quick money to be made, but there's still people who think that there are businesses and relevant businesses to be built off the blockchain. <laughs> um, and by the way, if you've looked at the Ethereum or, or Bitcoin uh, price lately, you'll see that they've rallied somewhat in the last six months. And even last week, Chelsea signed a, a shirt sleeve sponsorship with, uh, with a crypto brand. So mm -hmm. it's not gone. What I would say is that the market around um, NFTs based on ubiquitous content and clips that you can go and find on YouTube or any other streaming platform, um, I, was, I was always a skeptic about that and the digital ownership of, of ubiquitous content as an asset class. I didn't scream rarity or scarcity to me. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that aspect is is potentially one that's gone mm -hmm. um, where i see still use cases um, around nfts in particular is where they have a symbolic value and where they are um, symbolic of a wider set of benefits utilities etc so you know when you look at something like the board ape yacht club those monkey jpegs um, weren't, didn't have an inherent value, but what they did was they, they were a, a status symbol. Mm -hmm. And you make a, a leap then to sport and you, you can have an applicability where the NFT is representative of your membership or your association with an organization. And there's demonstrable proof of all the interactions you've had with that organization. Um, and so whether you've paid them or you've attended a, a, a bunch of away matches or you, um, you've read or consumed content from that organization, you can start to build up a track record of your association. Mm -hmm. And I think that's quite a powerful tool um, and, and will bring people closer in to, to sports organizations. So I don't think it's a, a busted flush and I defend our work from previous years. No, uh, and maybe it's just that the utility of uh, things that are built on the blockchain is more clear now. Yes. and. Uh, Let's, let's not escape the fact that when there's money to be made, people in the sports industry will come and have meetings and, and, and take some of those checks and have some of those calls. Mm. Uh, I think it's a more interesting time now where the, the free money's not there. So let's think about, okay, is there, are there use cases? And I think there are still. Mm -hmm. You talk about Web3 um, NFTs in the blockchain as part of a broader discussion which you guys at IMG Digital um, call the third age of the internet, mm -hmm. which, which you say we're in now. Um, and you've got a very jazzy graphic in the latest trends report. I wonder whether you can talk us through that graphic and, and what it means and, and what we in the sports industry should be excited by. Sure. So there's two things to talk about. One is umbrella terms and then the other is time horizons. Yes. So umbrella terms are things like metaverse or Web3. And essentially with any of those terms, they uh, encompass a large number of technologies. And it was the same with the first age of the internet where certain technologies became foundational, others fell away. And so it's us trying to group those technologies under broad um, headlines and then working out which amongst those subsets are going to be impactful and which aren't and over what time horizon. And so the time horizon um, is an interesting one, I think, because um, what I've learned about trends is it's, it's not too difficult to identify them, but it's difficult to time them. <laughs> So if you invested in Magic Leap, you've lost a lot of money over many years, but that doesn't mean immersive entertainment's not going to be a thing. You just, they were a bit too early. Mm -hmm. um, so um, 
what we think broadly is there's, there's three buckets. There's the AI and machine learning piece. Um, there's the immersive piece, which is everything from AR to VR to virtual worlds. And, um, and then there's the Web3 technologies, which is NFTs, crypto, smart contracts, etc. Um, and broadly speaking, we think AI is a big thing and it's happening now. Immersive is a potentially big thing, but maybe a few years down the line. And then the Web3 stuff, moderate impact, and again, medium term in terms of when that impact will be felt. Mm -hmm. You mentioned AI as your sort of banker prediction, and clearly we're already seeing a lot of hype and a lot of use cases mm -hmm. um, there. First of all, there's the sort of executive lens, which sees it as potential uh, efficiency, mm -hmm. um, scale, and then there's probably lots of other people within the sports industry, particularly in content production roles, who have a bit of nervousness when they look at this and they think, well, that's the workforce shrinking and what am I going to do when a robot comes for my job? Mm -hmm. What's your view on that and where can you see new jobs being created as a result of this technology? So when the camera was invented, it didn't kill art, it just created a new form of art in photography. When the synthesizer came around, it didn't kill music, it created new genres of music. Debatable. <laughs> well, I'm a big Pet Shop Boys <laughs> yeah, fan, okay. so um, uh, I, I think it created a nice, nice uh, new subset there, but we'll, we'll leave that one for another time. Um, I don't think people in content production should be too fearful. I think um, what AI tools are going to allow us to do is be more creative and more efficient with our time. And so it's going to raise the bar in terms of the standard of content that's required. So um, rather than us all being satisfied with being able to do stuff faster, it's going to challenge us to be more creative, to do more versions of things, to create more personalized content and to explore creative boundaries. So I, I see that potentially um, as freeing up production folks to do more creative work, which I think uh, should, should, um, should be something not to be feared, but to be to be welcomed, uh, I think it's going to be part of the new creator tool set. Um, so I think it would be, be naive that people wouldn't want to update their skills accordingly. Um, we're seeing you know, organizations like LinkedIn report a 75% increase on people um, putting in terms like prompt engineering into their, into their professional credentials mm -hmm. or generalized artificial intelligence. These are things that prompt people... Prompt engineer is someone who writes prompts for something like ChatGPT. Yeah, essentially, if, if it's understanding what the uh, large language model can do and what to, what to input to get the best results from it. Um, and like anything, that is a skill and some people are better at it than others. Elsewhere, mm. in uh, the very good piece on the third age of the internet uh, slash defense of Web3, um, you talk about um, Broadcast innovation, really, machine learning and mm. kind of AI and what that can do for um, rights holders putting together packages of media rights. Mm. And you say that the uh, rights holder that is testing and learning in 2024 is leading in 2030 when it comes to this. Who can you see taking that position? So a couple of examples spring to mind. One is the NHL and their collaboration with the SPN on... Uh, the Big City Greens Classic, which used uh, live data and then and, uh, rendered the live action in a, in a virtual environment. Uh, the NFL did something similar with Toy Story and Pixar. Uh, and then our, our 
friends um, at TKO in, in UFC uh, are doing some incredible stuff with Meta on, on getting mixed martial arts content into the MetaQuest platform. So mm -hmm. it's those kinds of things, and they're not replacing the broadcast product just yet, but if you, if you start to see how people are combining live data with volumetric video, with uh, gaming engines, and then rendering, um, using AI to render action in new and virtual environments, you start to think about, well, that could be a, a completely new entertainment format. Um, and if you're not playing around with it now, it's difficult to put yourself in a position where you're leading the market when that becomes a true thing. Mm -hmm. Smarter stadiums is another section in the IMG Digital Trends. It's yeah. Stadiums are just going to get smarter. Um, what do you know? What does a smart stadium look like in 2024? So table stakes, I think, is uh, the ability to enter without uh, paper. Mm -hmm. So uh, being able to use your phone or your biometric identity to get in um, and then to be able to pay on contactless um, devices. I think there's, as you move up the value chain then, um, you need to then create efficiencies to make the fan experience more frictionless. People um, need to be convinced to leave their uh, state-of-the-art home entertainment environments. And uh, so that's about creating easier ways in, fewer queues. Uh, the big challenge of the live and, um, entertainment experience is not waiting in line. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think going up the pyramid further, if you can create surprise and delight moments, um, and what I mean by that is someone um, coming to a venue that they recognize that you're in the venue, you're served personalized content, personalized ads, personalized offers, depending on where you are. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that, I think, is, is where we're headed. It may not be where we see all of our live experience in 2024, but it's certainly where we're going. Mm -hmm. Having put together this piece and you know, working in this space, where can you see stadium operators being able to maximize revenue or operational efficiency effectively with very limited investment in 2024? So the two challenges that can can generate um, income or savings relatively cheaply. I, I think, you know, it's interesting what we used to call the Internet of Things has has transpired. We all have uh, smart doorbells and speakers. Yeah. It's and, called stuff now, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm. Wearable devices. It's um, there are all these 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 connected um, uh, Internet enabled devices that um, the price points have come down quite a lot. So you can start integrating some of those cameras and, and, and beacons um, at, at a much more affordable price than you, you could have previously. Um, so I think in terms of generating savings and ROI immediately, there's, there's, there's one about the efficiency of venues. So venues can be quite energy intensive. So you can you, there, there are technologies that allow you to regulate lighting, heating, cooling, etc. Mm. Um, and, and that produces immediate savings. And then there's just making the most of that that hour, hour and a half, two hours um, of, of time that someone's spending in your venue through um, making sure that you can manage and control stock more effectively and also just ensure that you've got a greater throughput at every point in which there is a transaction. So I think those ones generate revenue quite quickly um, and, and create a positive ROI. Mm -hmm. Looking around the, the sporting world, well, the sports and entertainment world, what are some of the venues that you see as being best in class when it comes to integration of smart technology at the moment? 
The ones that speak, um, speak immediately to us, I'd say um, Tottenham Hotspur's cashless environment is really, um, is really impressive. Uh, the San Francisco 49ers do some interesting stuff around um, showing people to their car spots. Um, the whole point around reducing friction. Clearly, the, the big example, the big shining example is the sphere in Las Vegas. Um, uh, not sure if many uh, of your viewers will have the two billion plus dollars to create something similar. But I think what it does is it points the way to um, to what's expected of venues in the future mm -hmm. and, and, and that they are more than a place to house a crowd of people and that they need to become part of the entertainment experience itself. Mm. So, I mean, if you look at just the screen infrastructure and the design of the sphere, it's, it's, it's as a structure trying to make the entertainment experience better. And then, you know, as, as an added benefit, it's a, an incredible piece of ad real estate, mm -hmm. um, which maybe helps finance that two billion mm -hmm. build. Let's talk about uh, venues that maybe we haven't heard too much about. There's an interesting business called Cosm. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they've got a couple of uh, facilities in development. And that's about trying to create immersive experiences around live sports venues. So um, if you can't go to the Super Bowl or, or, or to a, another big sporting occasion, they will try and create a, a crowd uh, uh, environment uh, that is something a step above going and watching it in a sports bar. Mm -hmm. um, so again, those big dome-like structures, incredible screens, sensory audio and, 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 and visual um, experience to basically uplift the, 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 the broadcast experience and making it more social. I think that one is a very interesting prospect and one I'm, I'm, I've got a close eye on. Mm -hmm. uh, you're actually headed to Vegas in the next few days. Are you going to go to the Sphere? Um, I'll see if I can expense the uh, <laughs> the, the, the ad inventory. <laughs> exactly. Pop your head on it. Um, uh, yeah. Um, our colleagues at, at UFC are there and I, I will be um, taking a look at Darren Aronofsky's um, immersive cinema experience yeah. there. Yeah. Well, you won't be able to miss it from the plane, I'm sure. Exactly. Yeah. Well, hopefully it's a nice uh, uh, yeah, beacon for our pilot to yeah. find its destination. Charlie Bale, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, James.